Welcome back. Welcome to Phenomenal Flicks. Just as a little editor's note for this episode before I get into it, um, we have a pretty big storm where I'm at right now. So as much as I can do with microphones and setups and soundproofing, um, there's some rain coming through, which is hurting the Wi-Fi and hurting, obviously, the rain against my windows and scaring the ever-loving shit out of my dog. So in this episode, you're going to have to kind of bear with me. Um, editing out these things would have kind of compromised the conversation, unfortunately. Um, there are slight just second long periods maybe one or two where me or Colin kind of cut out a little bit um, or you hear my dog barking honestly my dog safety and my time constraints kind of made it impossible to avoid that and I can only blame Illinois weather and the global warming for that so thanks anyway into the review now Today I'm reviewing Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, Ken Watanabe, Dalip Rao, Killian Murphy, and Marion Cotier, with Michael Caine, directed by Christopher Nolan. And you might be thinking, Inception? That's a 10-year-old movie, and you would be correct. We are celebrating the 10th anniversary of Inception. With the COVID-19 pandemic happening, it's becoming increasingly harder to find new content. There is some stuff that's been released on demand, and I want to review that very shortly. But I thought, why not review a fantastic movie that got released 10 years ago, almost to the day, and do sort of a new review about it. Now, unlike my weekend and release reviews, um, this is going to be a spoiler review. If you haven't seen Inception yet, I would say pause this, go watch it, and then come back. Um, it is a fantastic movie, not to spoil my review at the end, my grade, but yeah, watch, watch this film. This was going to be a film re-released in theaters for the reopening for this pandemic. However, I doubt it's going to make its July 31st re-release date. If it does, that's awesome, but I, I just do not see it happening. However, it is on Amazon Prime, it's on YouTube, it's on home media in certain ways, so it is easy to view. And I have a really weird history with this film. I saw it the day it came out in theaters and have not seen it since. I thought it was so good and so kind of mind-bending that I thought revisiting it soon after it came out on DVD for the first time would be a great idea. However, I just never did. And I, I thought, well, now is the perfect time to do it. Now is going to be the time to watch it again and kind of see if I still loved it 10 years later like I did when I first saw it. I'm going to be joined by a friend of mine, Colin Graves, shortly. We're going to talk about the movie for an hour or so. And then, as usual, give our final grades at the end. But first, I want to give way to the new segment on this podcast called Scared to Beth, a one-minute review segment with my friend Beth Tamita, who hates horror movies and is being forced by me to watch them to see if they calm her anxieties at all. 
Beth is reviewing The Exorcist on this segment, so take it away, Beth. I watched the 1973 film The Exorcist. I'm not sure if it's one of the original horror films or not. I think it is. Um, I actually really liked it. I It was kind of my intro back into scary movies while actually like paying attention to it. It really kind of gave me an appreciation for film. And I texted Tommy afterwards and I was like, huh, does CGI kind of ruin like the magic of film? And he said, absolutely. And I was like, yes. I'm getting it. Um, so I liked it. It was a good, um, there's a good amount of like uh, suspense and spookiness. I still really wanted to cover my eyes at some parts, um, but it wasn't bad enough where I thought I was going to have a panic attack. Um, so I liked it. I think everybody should watch The Exorcist, especially if you are trying to get into watching scary movies again. Thanks for that fantastic review, Beth. I am back with my full review of Inception, as I mentioned, and like I said, I'm having a guest with me today. Ladies and gentlemen of the pod, welcome my friend Colin Graves. Please refer to me as Corona Graves. Corona Graves, yes. Uh, Colin is one of the 14 people I know that got the coronavirus. So uh, Colin, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, contracted the uh, (laughs) virus of the global pandemic we're dealing with? I guess. Um, well, my name's Colin Graves, a.k.a. Corona Graves. I live in Nashville, and I am a failing musician. I mean, <laughs> aspiring musician. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. I bartend, and... Well, now, right now, I'm riding the unemployment train, currently. Not complaining. Um, I don't know how I contracted the coronavirus because I wore a mask all the time when I went out and I didn't go out very much. I went to Publix or Kroger. <laughs> are, those, are those grocery stores in Nashville? Yes. Okay. So for my Nashville fan base of the uh, 28 people that listen to me, excellent. Don't go to those places because that's where you'll catch the coronavirus. So uh, Colin and I became friends. We used to work together at a restaurant and we actually became friends oh, over two things on the same day. It was uh, a Rick and Morty joke and the shared love we have of the film La La Land, um, which Colin is a jazz musician, so that movie really struck a chord with him. We're both drummers. He's far more superior of a drummer than I am. But we became friends through that. Yeah, we, just, we found out that we liked a lot of the same movies and had a lot of the same ideas on movies. Um, so we pretty much went to the movies for two straight years and saw... A lot of things. We even went on double dates and we were pretty much dating each other while the two girls were the (laughs) third and fourth wheel. Um, So, Colin, how did you discover or just really realize that you loved kind of sitting either at home or in a dark movie theater and watching films? Um, Well, my dad's always been into movies. I think he's gotten the whole family into it, which goes back to my grandpa, who used to spend his days sitting in his recliner watching old westerns Clint Eastwood's movies if you will so he was usually asleep though so I don't know where I get to actually watching movies but I think that namely comes from my dad and my grandpa um personally I really started to get into like the analytics how I am now into it um probably around 2012-ish um actually the I like to go through directors from start to finish even the shitty ones uh, shitty movies, <laughs> just to see the process of, 
you know, where they started and then their um, artistic intentions throughout, I guess. Kind of how they grow um, as filmmakers? Yeah. I think at least one of the first ones, maybe the first director I did was Christopher Nolan. Oh, excellent. See, that's something I did not know. Yeah. So you have seen Inception a couple times. Uh, I'm going to oh, blow yeah, your sure. mind with this with this movie. Um, I saw it when it came out, the day it came out in theaters. Um, my girlfriend at the time and I went to the midnight showing of it, and I loved it. I thought the movie was fantastic. I was a big fan, and I was like, I can't wait to see that again. And 10 years passed, and until yesterday, I never watched it again. And so wow. I discovered wow. a lot of new things or things I forgot about while rewatching it. So I have seen this film twice, and it's a movie I always talk about. Like, what is one of your favorite movies of the 2010s? Oh, Inception's up there. It's probably in my top 10. But for some reason, I never went back to it. Uh, how many times uh, have yeah. you really seen it? A lot. Um, <laughs> actually, I haven't seen it in, I don't know if to guess, maybe like eight years, okay. seven years. I don't like to rewatch movies quickly. But I have seen this one a lot, and I've listened to Hans Zimmer's score. Yes, which we a will lot. we will get yeah. into because uh, we're big Hans Zimmer fans. Um, yes. Colin, I guess the last question before we kind of dive into the movie is: What is your favorite movie? And if you don't have one, just maybe rattle off two or three, I guess. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm not very good at doing favorites, but I can give a cluster of favorites. Sure. Um, as far as Nolan goes, I can within my top five. Um, I actually like Interstellar a lot. I know a lot of people are iffy on that one, but stick my neck. <laughs> um, Mad Max Fury Road is my shit. Yeah, and as you like can see, I'm, I'm wearing my Charizard Mad Max Fury Road shirt. The dude. Ah, I didn't see that. Nice. <laughs> ADHD incarnate, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Horror Movie Rise. Actually, recently, The Lighthouse, I thought was awesome. Um, that was more of a auteur thing, but... Um, I mean, other than that, uh, The Tree of Life is really good. Yeah, that is a very uh, good movie. That one's rare. I didn't think I would hear that one from you, but excellent. Yeah. Um, let's see. Blade Runner 2049. Yes, which we saw That's, together. Yes. Um, I saw that one four times i think in theaters wow um which again i really watch things quickly <laughs> over again um other than that la la land and uh one that comes to mind is a uh, mandy oh yeah Mandy's recent awesome. ones. 20 2017 oscar winning la la land not a uh, not moonlight is which we watched together and we freaked out about but oh, yeah uh, yeah we're not <laughs> discussing la la land we will probably get to that though because i would love to talk more about that with you eventually but we are yeah. talking about inception today um, I'm going to do a brief plot summary and then we'll kind of get into the minutia of it. This is a spoiler-filled review since this movie's been out for 10 years. We are celebrating the 10th anniversary. You've had plenty of time to see this fucking movie. So, um, we, it. Yeah, we will spoil it. Um, again, I get a lot of questions on like, oh, are you going to spoil uh, Scoob? No, I'm not going to spoil a brand new movie for you people. Like, hey, Scoob! That's a pretty good shaggy. Way, that was better than anything in that movie. Um, but inception wise, 
Um, we have uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Dom Cobb. This is a IMDb uh, plot summary, by the way. So Leonardo DiCaprio plays Dom Cobb, a skilled thief, the absolute best in the dangerous art of dream extraction, stealing valuable secrets from deep within the subconscious during a dream state. When he is contracted by a failed experiment to plant an idea, which is known as Inception in this world, into a rival company head's mind, things go wrong and Cobb and his team spiral further down into the subconscious of not only their subject, but themselves. Now, that might sound like a confusing plot summary. I remember when this came out, I was very confused about what I was going to see, what My the trailer God. said, what the plot synopsis all said. However, I think Nolan and team kind of lay it out in a more direct way. There's some confusing things, but for the most part, if you're paying attention and not on your phone, this is actually a simple enough movie to keep keep your mind on. I'd agree. Yeah. Well, it has a... Uh, Nolan has this thing. He likes to do like this basic structure to familiarize the audience. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember Memento... You know, that had that whole, like, reverse chronology thing going on. Um, like, it's like a superstructure over a basic three-part act. Um, kind of film noir type of thing. So this is what he did with Inception. It was just like a thrilling heist movie, heist genre movie with all this crazy shit. Yeah, I mean, there's... I remember the trailer for this, and the first one of the first things you see... Is DiCaprio's sweet, sweet mug. And then you see like these buildings sort of moving in directions that buildings normally wouldn't. Streets and buildings kind of going vertical. And I was like, whoa, what am I about to see? That really doesn't have a lot to do with the film per se. I mean, it's sort of an architecture plot point of it, which we'll get into. But were you like, do you remember when this came out? Were you like excited to see it right away? Or did you not care too much? No, I was pumped. I went with a bunch of friends in a the Harvest Moon drive-in oh, cool. theater in Gibson City. Which nice. I just saw Empire Strikes Back at. So. Ooh, nice. Yeah. It's your fave, isn't it? It is my favorite. Yes, it is. Um, but yeah, this... Um, I mean, let's just kind of get into it. Like I said, we're going to spoil it. Um, so the movie starts... And I, I usually do hate this kind of trope where the movie starts where the movie's supposed to end. Um, which I always thought was just, it's always kind of silly. Um, it kind of disorients you right off the bat, though, because you see DiCaprio, he's kind of beat to shit, um, covered in seawater, and you see a very, 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 very old Ked Watanabe um, in not some great old age makeup, but, you know, I'll, I'll let that slide. Um, and then it cuts to a young Ken Watanabe, or as young as he was when the movie was made. Um, and that's kind of when we get into the first heist um, DiCaprio and, uh, whose, his name is Dom and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Arthur, are trying to extract, um, some information from the mind of Saito, who's played by Watanabe. And it all goes wrong because of the inclusion of his ex-wife, Dom's ex-wife, uh, who is named Maul, played by Marianne Cotier. I believe that's how you say her name. If I'm saying it wrong, uh, Marianne, you can, um, tweet me and let me know. If you're a big fan of the pod. Um, but yeah, right off the bat, it kind of sucks you right into the dream world. And I thought that was pretty uh, pretty compelling because normally you get a lot of setup. And you do get a lot of exposition in this. But 
normally the movie would start you out with the exposition and then show you, and this movie's like, nope, we're going right for it. Yeah, you gotta figure it out as it goes along. Yeah. Do you, uh, nice. what, what parts of, like, the, the first kind of dream extraction kind of jumped out at you? Um, well, first, they have all that rioting going on in the street, right? Yeah. So, but you don't realize you're in the dream yet. Because they only show it afterwards. Mm -hmm. So you're like, why are these people riding in the street? Well, it turns out it's the architect at the time, that guy. That's not... Yeah, I, I can't remember what his name was, but he basically is there and then he's gone almost right away. <laughs> yeah, it's his dream. Yeah. And apparently it's probably based on something that happened to him. Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of learn through that. That's kind of how these dreams can go. He was an architect. He knew how to build something convincing through that. But it turns out he didn't get the rug right, which is interesting. Yeah, there's uh, so there's a spot in the a spot, a scene where um, Cobb has Saito sort of at gunpoint. He's laying on this rug and Saito realizes, oh, I know what's happening because this rug is a different material than what I'm used to. And that sort of throws the whole thing off and that's where things start to go wrong. There's like an epic shootout um, where Maul um, gets Arthur sort of entrapped and shoots him in the leg because in this dream world, unlike say Nightmare on Elm Street, if you die in Nightmare on Elm Street, you die in real life. Well in this, if you die, you just wake up. And so she shoots him in the legs because pain is while it's temporary, it still will affect him. And then Cobb realizes, oh, here's where I can sort of get the better of them. He shoots Arthur in the head, which was very jarring to me because I didn't realize at first that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was going to get shot in the face. Right. And um, then they pull themselves out of the dream. Um, really, really intense, sort of disorienting scene right off the bat, I feel. Yes. We also <laughs> learn... I mean, Saito, he, uh, Kanabe, he, um, catches on pretty quickly. It's like yeah. he has some sort of training. We find out it's true. These guys in big corporations, um, have like training in their brains to, uh, kind of have these mental white blood cells to attack foreigners such as Leo. Yeah. I think that's, it's really interesting and it's something I didn't notice the first time I watched it years ago. If I did, I had forgotten about it and I kind of caught on to that right away. I did have to rewind uh, about five minutes back just to see if I was catching everything. I do think I want to rewatch it again, maybe tonight or tomorrow, just to see yeah. if there's more I can catch. I'm not going to wait another 10 years to watch <laughs> it. Um, and then this is where we sort of get into the big um, reveal that uh, the guy's name was Nash, by the way, the uh, architect, and he oh, okay. he turns on his crew, and so Saito um, or Saito, little ass hat. Yeah, Saito is just like, okay, well, I know that you are not allowed back in the United States. I know you have children, and the moment you land in the United States, you'll be put into prison because. He and his wife, Mal, had been in this dream world kind of creating, they say up to 50 years, they were in basically limbo, um, creating all this wonderment that they were getting away from their kids, they were getting away from reality, but the lack of real reality caused both of them to sort of go insane, for a lack of a better term. 
Um, so he went back into her subconscious, planted an idea that um, they need to be back into reality. And then when they were back into reality, she jumped out of a window, killed herself, all the while framing him to make it look like he killed her. And so Saito knows this and wants a plan that uh, Killian Murphy's character... By the way, is it Killian or Cillian? Um, I think it's Killian, okay. but don't quote me on that. Yeah, it's an Irish name, so it must be Killian. His character, uh, Robert Fisher, is an heir to a business empire, and his father dies. So Sato wants Cobb to plant the idea into Robert's head that he needs to basically defund this corporation. That way, Sato, who owns a rival corporation, will be able to come out on top. This is all said very exposition heavily, and I normally hate, 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 hate way too much exposition, but I feel that if this wasn't all said in that maybe five to ten minute scene, no one would know what the fuck was going on. Yikes on bikes. <laughs> yeah, I, well, there's also a lot of explaining to do, which is necessary, and also engaging because the world he has created is very complex and intellectual. So it involves a lot of thinking. It's not like anybody just knows going into Inception, especially at the time, without seeing it. What the fuck is going on? Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned, this is a movie that you heavily have to pay attention to, not be on your phone or laptop while you're watching it. Um, the movie's called Inception because normally these guys will extract information or an idea from someone's subconscious, but here they're planting the idea, and that's where the Inception thing comes from. Um, at this point, he travels to a uh, college in Europe um, where his father, played by Michael Caine, is and explains the whole situation. They need a new architect. And this is where he's introduced uh, introduced to Ariande, I believe is her name. It was They only say it like yeah. twice. Um, but she's played like by... Ariana Grande. Yeah, exactly. Smushed like the smushed them all together. Um, <laughs> and it's played by Ellen Page, um, who is basically Michael Caine's best grad student at this, and he puts her right into it. He's saying, oh, we're already asleep. You're already in the dream world. You don't remember how you got anywhere. And to me, this is kind of one of the coolest scenes because you, in movies, when someone's at a cafe talk, talking, you don't know how they got there. But here he explains oh, yeah. it. Oh, you're in this dream. This is what's happening. And so she starts to realize that people are looking at them in weird ways this is part of dom's subconscious looking at them and she starts to create and change the world that they're in um this is another part where mal shows up and actually kills i'm just going to call her ellen page because her name Arande or whatever is very hard to say um this is where she realizes that holy shit i was in a dream the whole time um this scene is visually one of like the best looking scenes i've ever seen um there's architecture coming out of absolutely nowhere, bridges, buildings changing. There's explosions that are done in slow motion. I mean, what do you think about this whole thing? Boom. Pow, boosh. <laughs> um, that seems pretty cool. Um, let's see. I forgot the name of the studio, but it's that, it's that British studio in uh, Bedfordshire. I don't know why I know that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, they do a bunch of Nolan movies. Like, they did the Dark Knight movies. I'm pretty sure they were involved in Interstellar and... Mm -hmm. They've won a lot of Oscars, really. So the uh, I was quite partial to the city folding in on itself. Yeah, that was pretty that was trippy. Neat. 
I remember seeing it in IMAX and thinking that was one of the coolest things, and it still looks really good. I'm not gonna sit here and swing my dick at the size of my TV, but it's a 70 inch, uh, so it looked pretty. Wow. It looked pretty cool on that as well. Um, this is kind of where you get again a lot of exposition, um, a lot of character development too. You find out the backstory of Maul and Cobb. Um, you find out kind of Arthur, who's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You find out his sort of backstory, and then we meet. Um, the other members of the crew, and I'm just going to go through them quickly and then we'll talk about them. You have um, Tom Hardy, who plays Emus. Um, he's a kind of snarky asshole. He's not wearing a mask for once, which is nice, because uh, Tom Hardy is always Stay safe. Wearing... Yeah, right. Yeah, in the, in the times of the pandemic, he's not wearing the mask, but he is a uh, person who can kind of manipulate minds to help them see. He's kind of like Morph from the X-Men or Mystique, where he can make people see people that they want to see her there. Um, we've got Dilip Rao, who plays Yusef, who is a chemist, or not a chemist, but a pharmacologist who helps them with the um, potion, essentially, that helps put them to sleep. And then Sedative, we, yes. Yeah, exactly. And then we're joined by uh, Sato, who um, is played very subtly and excellently, I think, by Ken Watanabe, who wants to join in on the on the fun, I guess, if you can call it. <laughs> yeah. and I like this as well because there's a lot of like mon it's like 80s montage style um, in this yeah, it's you like the, the heist recruitment yeah exactly it's a lot of fun it's a lot of things that you see in something like Fast and Furious 5 which is the best fast movie or the Ocean series um, something that we've seen a lot but it's done um, a little more straightforward still having that kind of heist fun that we normally get as well though right yeah makes it accessible because it's a big budget movie yeah exactly I heard he uh well, obviously, he had a hard time getting the studio to do this, but he's coming off the success of The Dark Knight from 2008 at this point. Yeah, I mean, how so, do you not let him kind of do whatever he wants after Batman Begins and The Dark Knight? Right. I heard he, um, after Batman Begins, he did The Prestige, and that went well for its budget, relatively. Have you so seen The when You he, have seen The Prestige, right? Yes. Okay, excellent. Big fan of that one. Good shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when he signed a contract to do The Dark Knight, I think this is all right, but... I think this is all correct. The uh, He signed a contract to do two more movies after Batman Begins. So he did The Dark Knight and obviously The Dark Knight Rises. And then after each Batman movie, the studio Warner Bros. would give him one pretty big budget. Just uh, whatever the fuck he wanted. Right. And this is... So... I believe it went Batman Begins. I mean, Batman Begins obviously isn't his first, but that was his first big movie. Prestige, right. The Dark Knight, this... The Dark Knight Rises, and I think he hit with Interstellar afterwards, right? right. So yeah, yeah, he, I think that's all part of the package yeah. too. And and so when he came with Inception, they're like, "Oh fuck, we shouldn't have done this." <laughs> but uh, they gave him 160 million dollars. So yeah, and he turned that into a uh, nearly billion dollar profit. I think it hit like 8.3 million or 8, yeah, 830 was... million. Sorry, not 8.3. Right. Uh, that would have yeah. been tragic if it hit 8.3 million. But <laughs> um, okay, so they they. Converge on this plan. Their whole point is on a plane ride from Sydney, Australia, obviously, to Los Angeles. They're going to extract, or not extract, but implant this idea into Fisher's head. So they buy the first class section of a plane, all of them. That's um, a good scene because they're all trying to figure out for a few minutes how to how to do it. And yeah. then... Uh, Saito's just like, oh, I bought it. Yeah, I bought it. And he, All right, moving on. <laughs> they have to buy not only the pilots, buy the pilots off, but the stewardess as well, which I thought was pretty fun. 
I thought it was a good excuse to escape more exposition. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's done very well, and you kind of know what's going on just by seeing what's happening on screen. And their whole plan, again, is to sedate him so hard for this trip. And then they're going to go into not just one dream, but they're going into three different tiers of dreams, which are something they the only person who's done that is Cobb. And so they create this thing called a kick, which will awaken the team members from each subsequent dream, essentially, um, with the, the, <laughs> I think this is how you play it, but the piece of music is called Non je ne regret rien, um, yes. which is French for no, I do not regret anything, um, which is just a beautiful piece of music. Um, and the kick, even though they are heavily sedated, helps them as they're in motion wake up from the dream so they'll wake up from dream three to dream two to dream one to reality which is really cool but i do have a question for you colin i'm gonna kind of throw a curveball at you do you think in this movie we are ever in anyone's real reality or do you think we are just in Cobb's head the whole time okay so when i rewatch this movie like i said well neither one of us have seen it you in a decade me in probably seven eight years i forgot about the last scene should I bring that up with the, well, okay, so in a dream, when you're in these dreams, everybody has their totems. Yes. Which I did some research. Um, lucid dreaming, totems are a thing. So if you, I mean, lucid dreaming, you are dreaming, but you're, it's like skill. A lot of people can do it, but it's like a skill to be good at it, right? Mm-hmm. So your mind's constantly like trying to wake up. You need to like do things to keep yourself focused. So if you're in a dream, like a lucid dream, you look at your totem oh, I'm still in a dream. Then your mind can, like, relax. You're like, okay, then let's just do the dream thing. And in its inception, they have totems to see if they're in the dream. For example, uh, Dom's, or is it Don? It's Dom. Yeah, with with an M. Yes. Um, let's see. He His is like a little, I don't know what you call it. It's like a spinning top. Yeah. There's a word for it. I don't know. But he spins it, and then it keeps spinning. And when it stops spinning, that means you're in real life. But when you uh, keep spinning and defies physics, that means you're in a dream. Um, so the last shot, he spins it, and we zoom in on it, and it kind of wavers a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I rewound it like 30 times. And did, I you, go, did see, you go frame by frame? Um, no, but I did watch it in 4K, so I could see the little grooves in the, um, in the table. Mm-hmm. And when it wobbles, it hits one of the grooves and keeps going. So, technically, we have no idea. He could be in a dream or he just couldn't have fallen yet. But throughout the movie, he does spin it, and it does fall. So, at least real life is a thing. Yeah. I was proposed this question when I first saw it, and I said, I I totally understood where the question came from. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Until I realized about a third into the movie, he does spin the top, and it does fall down. So, that means that at least at the beginning, they have to be in reality. Um, my favorite part about the dreams, however, is that when you are defying physics in a lot of ways. So for instance, in the first dream, uh, it is Yusuf's dream to go into the second dream. So he's the only one awake and he's trying to avoid all this gunfire from, uh, people who are implanted into Fisher's subconscious to protect him because he knows about this inception technique. So... Everyone's asleep in this van except for Yusuf, and he veers it off of a bridge, and then we get... I think that van was falling for like 45 minutes in complete slow motion. And 
when they're in Dream 2, when the van is moving around and you see this close-up, I think this close-up happened at least five or six times of, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt slowly veering to the left oh, and yeah. stands up. They, I noticed they definitely reused it. Yeah, they, they reused <laughs> some footage. Um, we'll clean it up in post. It'll be fine. <laughs> but <laughs> so when that happens, Joseph Gordon-Levitt does, in, in this hallway that he's in in this hotel, gets thrown, essentially, across yes. the room. And in my opinion... While the first dream is cool, the second tier dream is probably the best one because of the physics and the effects, which were all practical in this, aside some tiny little details. But he did yes. a lot of I'd wire like work. I'd like to uh, talk about that as well. Yeah, please go right ahead. Sweet. Oh, I see I him busting out his notes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's always been my favorite scene in the movie. And uh, it looks like they're using wires. Mm -hmm. That's what I always thought, but they're not. Oh, really? Um, I watched, yeah, I read some interviews and watched some interviews and watched some uh, footage. I still have it on DVD from 2010. <laughs> um, so it's just the anti-gravity scene, right? So yeah. um, no one usually likes to, I mean, he does use CGA, obviously, but he does enjoy practical effects. He likes to use them when he can. Like the train scene that we see in the first dream, that's <laughs> a practical effect. Yeah, qu quick sidebar, cool. that train they're they're all at different points when they enter the first dream and um a few of them get into a cab with fisher and then the others are in this car and as soon as ellen page gets in this car this train barrels out Gosh. of nowhere and starts taking down it's not even on a train track it just starts coming down the middle of the street um i had forgotten about this did it scare the living shit out of you at first um yeah i did jump <laughs> I did not remember this happening, so I'm, you know, focused on the movie, focused on Ellen Page getting into the car, and then boom, train out of nowhere. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Head back with the effects. Yeah, I had a blasting over my uh, soundbar. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, so here's some fun facts. So it took place in this giant fucking warehouse that they also filmed um, The Dark Knight. Um, let's see, what scene was that? Well, The Dark Knight Rises, it was... No, it was The Dark Knight. It was at the end, towards the end of the third act. Is that when he burns the all the money? Um, actually, maybe, but um, it's when he uh, is chasing the Joker in that warehouse. Oh, yeah. And he strings him upside down. Um, it's the last see, time we ever also... see Heath Ledger on screen. Yeah. And then, um, or was that Dr. Parnassus? That movie didn't count. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Truth. The other one was in uh, Batman Begins. It was the uh, Metro sequence. The oh, end. yeah, yeah. When uh, Liam Neeson, yeah. So, I mean, it's a big-ass big building. Yeah, what a great... Big old boy. Th not, to, not to sidebar again, but just what a great trilogy. Yeah, man. It's the shit. So, I mean, so they did like an anti-gravity thing. So apparently, usually in movies, they do this crazy thing on a NASA-issued plane that they like to call the Vomit Comet. Um, so you take off at 45 degree angle, plateau at 34,000 feet, and they call this the weightless period, and then they film, and then they dive back down at 45 degrees. So Nolan didn't want to do that. He built this giant rotating centrifuge, which is a nice word. So this giant thing had 500 crew members that he uh, used for. Um, let's see, it was based off of 2001. So it's a 100-foot centrifuge made to look like a hallway. It has seven steel circles connected to 30-foot uh, diameter rotor wheels, which are connected to a 
just two 55 horsepower electric motors, which is not much. That's like a small bike. Right. Which is surprising. So, let's see, where am I at? Cool, so the camera, as you can tell, the, uh, the, the hallway is moving, but the camera is not. So the camera, so it's like this big open circle cylinder, centrifuge, right? So they put the camera levitated on a crane and just stick her in there. So everything's moving around it, but to get uh, a sense of scope, they did uh, nail some cameras to the floor to actually get like the, the turning sensation with them. So like I said, they are not using um, wires. JGL, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, actually was running around free in that. That's pretty amazing. So yeah. this movie got compared a lot, at least on principle, not on really uh, execution to, no pun intended, to A Nightmare on Elm Street. Because um, it deals a lot with dreams, it deals a lot with fears of what you would find in dreams, and I did not actually know that about sort of the large warehouse. Because in the first Nightmare on Elm Street film, um, Colin, are you familiar with Freddy Krueger? Yes. Okay, so there is a scene where Johnny Depp's character, yes, Johnny Depp is in a Nightmare on Elm Street, gets clawed and sucked into a bed, and then a geyser of blood comes out of it. Um, this was done in a small rotating room where, again, the camera was just stuck somewhere and they started rotating the room and turning it upside down and whatnot. So now that you mentioned that, it's actually reminding me even more of an eyebrow on Elm Street, at least in those small details. Um, you're mentioning the effects. Uh, they do it in a... Oh, good. Oh, no, no, you, you please. <laughs> no, I was just side-noting a 2001, I think, was the original one to yes. do yeah. this technique. Yeah, absolutely, which is also a great film. If no one's seen that one, please do. Um, do we want to sort of talk about the effects? I mean, this is, in my opinion... I remember when this came out, a lot of people were saying, because Avatar had just coming out, Avatar is like the most beautiful movie ever, and I was countering right away with this. Like, this movie is beautifully shot it's beautifully edited the location is great and they shot in paris they shot in all the places they were actually at and then the effects are just top of the line i mean you can see where they spent all their money did you watch it in 4k uh, i did not watch it in 4k unfortunately right. i didn't i own the original blu-ray i don't own it in 4k okay i will um, though yeah. i will <laughs> um yeah i could i don't know it wasn't like true 4k i don't think i think it was just upscale but I agree. Wally Feister, I believe is how you say his name. He won the Oscar for cinematography. He did, yes. This movie won a few Oscars, if I'm not mistaken, correct? It, it won was, uh, cinematography. Visual effects yeah. as well. And then probably the sound categories because they usually go hand in hand. Right. Yeah. I mean, and this was also nominated for Best Picture um, and the score, which I don't think Hans Zimmer won. Um, but I mean, the effects in this are just top notch. Even the smaller things, such as the like the gunfire aspect that we see in the third dream, the slow motion, which I mentioned, which I think is just fantastic. I mean, even though we were kind of joking and they might have used the same shot of Joseph Gordon-Levitt like four or five times, um, you know, the slow motion scenes of like the buildings exploding or the buildings moving or the van crashing down in the water, I think are all just fantastic. Agreed. Yeah, yeah especially for, I mean, 2010 was a fucking decade ago now man yeah i know looks looks pretty good yeah you were still a, a teenager if i'm not mistaken <laughs> I was 12, 18 years old <laughs> um yeah so the the art direction just all of that really works really well and um everything from christopher nolan's um directing obviously and then the ideas that he comes up with 
to, um, as you mentioned, Wally, uh, what is it, Fister, right, is his last name? I think it's Feister. Feister. <laughs> I would hope it's not Feister. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I know Legendary Pictures and um, Syncopy did the production design and whatnot. So, um, yeah, all of that is fantastic. But I, I can see you kind of shaking. Um, we're doing this on a Zoom call, so I can see your microphone, and I think I see a little bit of your drum set in the background. So, Colin, oh, do yes. you want to talk about uh, Hans Zimmer's score for this film? Oh, yeah. Um, yes, I'm a big Zimmer fan. I know some, like, he's always been popular, but I know some... Or the uh, documentary. Mm -hmm. um, it just kind of gives you an overview of, you know, music scoring. It's not too crazy, but it's really interesting to watch. And you get a bunch of interviews that basically tell you that Hans Zimmer is the shit, and everybody really looks up to him yeah. within their circle, the real circle, the business. So, yes, so this is interesting. So usually when you score a film, um, you know, you have the edits, and then you have them playing, and then you look at a screen, and then, you know, you make your, your little ditties along till you got cues. It's kind of like editing in a way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's kind of just like a basic popular way to do it. I'm not really into that. That's not how you exactly. score your films? I tried to do it once and it didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's just like, I think, the basic approach. Anyway, so he did this before the editing process. Lee Smith is the editor who, that's kind of a in there fact, but he's awesome. He's Nolan's guy mm -hmm. and he's amazing at editing. Um, I think he got nominated for this one, and he won one for something. Dunkirk, maybe. I'm not sure. Anyway, where the fuck was I? <laughs> the score of Hans Zimmer. <laughs> yes. So he, I mean, Hans Zimmer is a god. So he made his score based solely on the script, allegedly. So he made all these, like, is, everything's very atmospheric, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, they're very, it's very minimalistic and widespread out he did that so it can be placed i believe he worked with lee smith to place the cues and place these things where they should be you you called it the uh i mean it's very blah i mean that's where it the blah comes from is this movie so there's a lot of in your face emotional impact but oh probably most of the score maybe like 75 percent of it is very underneath just normal dialogue yeah and it's very atmospheric it's barely even there a good score most of the time will uh, elevate uh, visuals on the screen through emotional impact. Um, but a better score will do that, and then those non-dramatic moments will create an atmosphere. And basically, it's it's seamless. You don't notice it's going in. It's kind of subconsciously registering in your brain. Mm -hmm. and Which I think I mean, was the, the point of this score, because it deals a lot with subconscious. So yes. I wasn't listening too much to the score, because... Again, like you said, a good composer does it to where you're not supposed to notice it except in the back of your mind. And it was something that I could think about after I got done watching the movie. Yes. Yeah. Which, that was actually my next point, was the whole, there's that subconscious dream theme in the movie. Mm -hmm. And that's like what he did. Yeah, that's pretty cool. He made it very, um, he kind of mixed the dietic and the non-dietic versions of making music and sort of work them into his score, which I think is just phenomenal. And I can't remember what he lost to this year for best original score. 
Um, I think but, it was legit, but I don't remember. Yeah, it was the social network, which, you know what, yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty good one to lose to in my book. Yeah. But <laughs> they're, they're probably neck and neck for yeah. sure. Because yeah, they're absolutely. both, uh, at the time, were very um, forward-thinking. So, usually it's just like, you're right, an orchestra score, orchestra plays it. So what he did, he's always trying to reinvent himself. So he's, obviously, I mean, he grew up playing in a rock band. Right. I don't was it Devo or is that somebody else? Um, I think Devo was Mark Mothersbaugh, right? If I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, no, you're correct. And then he played. He's like he played the keyboard, I think. Yeah. Unless that was Danny Elfman, I don't remember. <laughs> Some of those damn, damn scores, scores, composers. Wow. Damn geeks. <laughs> um, so what he did is he wanted to take like a synth approach, right? So he had all these atmospheric synths that he used analog mm -hmm. um and he basically <laughs> hi rello yeah you, he, can, uh, you can hear my dog a... he's, he's always guest guest spotting on this bark, bark. he gets jealous yeah he's our celebrity um so oh he wanted to make like a synth thing so he made the synth and then he uh gave the orchestra this weird chart and he said emulate the synth so when you listen to it it kind of sounds like a synth and there is some electronic shit going on mm -hmm. but most of it is a especially the lower end the cellos and the basses uh they are emulating a synth which is very forward-thinking and low-key kind of genius yeah, and it works that. awesome and he's used that ever since and now he's definitely like full-on electronic yeah and it's something he does while while uh nolan is still usually helping edit his films so they're kind of working neck and neck even though the film's not fully finished and fully edited he's usually coming up with stuff as pre or post-production is happening which yeah. is very rare because not even john williams does that right yeah so True collaboration yeah cool. exactly and i think i mean besides steven spielberg slash george lucas and john williams i think hans zimmer and christopher nolan are probably the two best people that work together i would say number two yeah, yeah. david fincher and trent reznor are up there now as well but <laughs> yes. um yeah so we're kind of getting to the end of the film i know we've skipped over some major plot points but again like we're getting into the most important points instead of every little minute detail um so you got dream one, which I, I love these three tiered dreams because they're all sort of action oriented, but different types of action film. Um, so like the first one is just a straight up kind of like action movie sense. The second one is more kind of spy espionage. And the third one reminds me a little more of like a war action film. Did you kind of get that genre? Yeah, bending? so... Yeah, I like Nolan a lot, dude, because he's always uh, he's making these big budget movies that are very accessible, but he's constantly challenging the audience, and mm -hmm. there's a different art to that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he has this multi-tiered fucking... I mean, if you count real life, there's four, right? And they go even deeper, so there could be like five. Yeah, then they go into limbo at the end. Yeah, but technically there's four dream states, and that's that's hard to keep track of, even especially if you're like some dumbass like shoveling popcorn up your ass i don't know what that meant <laughs> um eating your but, raisinets yeah <laughs> so he uh he um separates each of these um tears these dream sequences very contrastly so the first one it's raining um turns out the guy whose dream that is, he has to pee. Yeah, which I thought was just brilliant because, like, oh, the only reason it's, it's storming outside 
is because Yusuf has to take a leak. I love stupid excuses like yeah. that. It's perfect. It's like, ah, fuck it. Um, let's see. The second one is just like a dark inside thing. It's kind of necessary for the tone of the film. Mm -hmm. And the third one, it's like snowing and they're in a the mountain. Yeah. Um, Which they don't really touch on why, but I mean, it makes it makes sense, I guess. So. Yeah. Well, the, the architect made it, right? Yeah. So you wanted that just... cool, cool visual of it, essentially. Yeah. Good excuse for like an action sequence, basically. Yeah. So. One thing I did hate about this third dream where they're in kind of the snow, the one that kind of reminded me of like old 60s, 70s James Bond flicks is um, every person who is a bad guy, and I'm putting that in quotations, um, can't, he, he, they become a stormtrooper. They can't shoot for shit. Even when like <laughs> someone's right in front of them, they miss them completely. Um, the only one who really gets hit is Sato and he ends up being fine near the end anyway. Um, so that is like my kind of big knock against this. I get it. It's like a whole disorienting subconscious dream thing. And we're not supposed to take it as reality, but even in dreams, especially if these people are protecting Fisher, they would be able to shoot. I would hope so. Unless they were trained by the empire to do so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, you're okay. Um, yeah, I mean, then to be able to get out of the dream, I mentioned that kick that we talked about that's going to get them out of it. And then Mal, uh, not Mal, uh, well, Mal sort of sucks Cobb into... Darth Mal. Yeah, Darth, Darth Mal. Mal. Darth Mal sucks Cobb into Limbo where Ellen Page follows him. And he says, no, you need to go so I can stay here and be with my wife. And she says, no, you need to leave this area. You need to be able to leave with us and be able to finish the job. Now, no, you need help, yeah, Leo. You, well, yeah, basically, DiCaprio, you need help, which I think is funny that this is the second movie in 2010 where he's kind of stuck in his own mind and insane because Shutter Island <laughs> was kind true. of the same fucking yeah. movie. Um, and we get the end where they're all off the plane and you see DiCaprio is able to land in Los Angeles and meet his kids. He's picked up by Michael Caine. He gets to meet his kids. And he's like, is this real? And he spins the top. And that's the shot you talked about. Does the top stop, I guess? Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Do you think he was able to get out of limbo? Or do you think he's pretty much brain dead and unable to leave the five-tier subconscious? It's a very open-ended question. <laughs> um, one thing I actually did think of is that, you know, in his dream, his kids, I mean, the last image in his brain mm -hmm. that he saw of his kids, it was just the back of their heads. Yeah. He's like, I thought about calling out to them, but I had to go. And so they just kind of ran away. I thought it, it would be really freaky to show that he was still in the dream, maybe, that at the end, he, he you know, he has his kids, last shot, and then they turn around it's like the front of their bodies, but their front of their face is still the back of their heads. No face. Oh, that, yeah, that would be terrifying. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned every time he sees them in, in dreams, he only sees them, but their faces are covered by hair, or they're like someone walks yeah. in front of them, or they hide behind a wall. And here you actually do see the faces. Um, right. That can still completely be something that is just in his subconscious. Like all of a sudden, now I remembered it. But we got to get back to that top. I mean, does True. the top stop spinning um, i i i know it wobbles but you saw it in 4k so you saw a i think it's picture. real life you think it's real I think life it's real life um it's very cool how he just left it like that because it could be anything yeah. well done and obviously that's one thing to remember the movie by it's like a marketing technique yeah almost. 
Absolutely. And I, I love a good film like that that says it's leaving it up to the audience, which I know a lot of people don't like for some reason. They want to be spoon-fed everything, but Nolan's less like, yeah. how about you decide what happens? It's the same thing he sort of did with Interstellar. He did it with Memento. He did it with Dunkirk. He's letting the audience people kind of decide. <laughs> yeah, he's letting the audience decide for themselves, and it can be their interpretation of his interpretation of a movie. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, okay, so you get, like, real life, allegedly, uh, Dream 1, Dream 2, Dream 3, and then Limbo, limbo area. So you go Limbo area, area, Dream 3, Dream 2, Dream 1, real life, which is what that's supposed to be in. So if, when, at the last shot, but if it was a dream, it's because we weren't shown that he went back in, which I think is would be a cheap thing to do, so I'm going to say it's real life. Okay. I, no one ain't cheap. I, on my first viewing when I was 20 and didn't know dick about movies, um, I mean, I watched thousands, but I just didn't really know how to critique anything properly, thought that he was still in the dream. But as I watch it now, I think what you said really makes a lot more sense that, yeah, he didn't really go back into anything, and sure, he might not have been able to get pulled out, but I think the fact that he is able to see his kids properly kind of tells you that he did get pulled out yeah, yeah. i think it's just kind of like it makes sense yeah. you know it's not like black and white but yeah it should be real life and this i mean this movie has kind of sparked a lot of debate especially right when it came out and even for being as young as it is yeah we joke and like holy shit 10 years but 10 years isn't like 50 years in the grand scheme right. of things um this movie's lived on with a pretty heavy legacy i mean it won a good amount of awards not just oscars but golden globes and whatnot um it has been parodied and referenced in a lot of things most notably the ones that come to my mind are south park and rick and morty um one of my personal favorite rick and morty episodes um and it's just something a lot of people talk about and aside from it was his big it was nolan's first big movie after the dark knight that really got people excited and talking about what other things he could do as a director. You're going to hear some rain in the background because of the, the storm I was talking oh, about. Oh, wow, I can hear it. Yeah, you're going to... I mean, this was things that people realized, like, yeah, he did Batman awesome, but now he can do something else that's really cool. And that's why people gave Interstellar a chance and Dunkirk a chance. And the I mean, Tenet, when that ever happens to come out, maybe. Um, so, not August. Yeah. I'm going to call it not August. August 12th is the tentative date, no pun intended, but... Um, and he, I mean, you don't even need anything for a Christopher Nolan film. You can do a, the word tenant and put Christopher Nolan film and everyone's like, holy shit, I need to see that. And they don't know anything about it. It's the right. same thing that actually did happen with Dunkirk. You got that great Hans Zimmer score, the, the kind of stopwatch sound. And all you saw was a beautiful shot of like a dude on a beach. And then it just, Dunkirk. I'm there. You and I were there to see it yes. opening day. And it was awesome. But again, we're not talking about Dunkirk. We're talking about Inception. Um, Colin, before we do our final uh, grades of the movie, um, do you kind of want to talk about any other points that we might have missed? Um, actually, like I have little notes written down. We kind of went down naturally in order of what I was going to talk about. So. All right, perfect. Well, I think I'm pretty good. Cool. Colin, what grade, letter grade from... A plus to F, would you give Inception? And reasons why, um, I, 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 I don't really have any qualms, per se. I do have some, like, neutral statements that we already went over that I don't think are necessarily bringing the movie down, but it's kind of 
natural for the movie to not be an A plus because of, and that's just the, um, I mean, he built this world that he has to explain, which he did the best he could right. and probably better than anybody else could. So if anything, that's a plus in a way, but just naturally it's a lot of exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, and it, some people have a lot of power, you know, Saito, um, Oh, we need an airplane. I bought it. Um, Oh, I can fix all your problems. Right. How? We don't know. We don't know why. <laughs> um, the corporation that's going to apparently take over the world because energy. I mean, it's just vague enough that it works. Yeah. I mean, they get dropped relatively quickly. Yeah. yeah. It could. It was just a real quick thing. It's like, here's the excuse. And that totally works because we want to get to the action and all the uh, the, the rules going. No environment so in a way that's preferred but i think just naturally it's very minorly flawed mm-hmm. because of that so i, I still give it an a yeah. i have no qualms yeah. necessarily just kind of neutral stances on it i mean i can't i'm gonna echo your sentiment this movie's getting an a from me kind of for the same reasons that you mentioned that are stopping it from being an a plus but i mean yeah. just as a film and as a idea alone it's pretty spectacular the way it's shot the effects the incredibly high concept idea of it are all fantastic. I mean, like you said, the the rival company that barely gets mentioned and then kind of dropped right away, or um, I mentioned the uh, stormtrooper shooting. I mean, those things are small details, but those are the kind of things that stop it from being an A plus. But I think both of us giving it an A is, I mean, still pretty high praise, and it's something that while I haven't seen it in ten years, like I said, it is still something that I can mention and it's that's pretty empowering for the film it's interesting that it was made 10 years ago because his wife and him Mm -hmm. um are quoted for saying that he started writing this during memento right yeah came out in 2000 10 years before the release and his wife said he was actively every year going back and working on it which is pretty interesting to think memento came out that long ago and then inception came out and then tenet's supposed to be this this year, so with a 10 to 10 to 10 year span, we get three pretty high concept, interesting movies that take a lot of detail to pay attention to. Yes. yes. So um, I'm not going to have you rank every Christopher Nolan movie. Granted, he doesn't I have... I could, though. I have a list. Yeah. Was it? <laughs> Do you want to rank all the Christopher Nolan movies? Yeah, let's go. I got my letterbox <laughs> open and ready to go. All right, perfect. Hit me with them, Colin. Just go quickly in order. Hold on, I have to open the app. <laughs> Well, I, I would put this personally, um, Memento is my absolute favorite, um, followed okay, by The fair. Dark Knight. I would probably put this tied with third with Dunkirk. Um, but I mean, the guy hasn't made a bad movie, um, in my opinion. I haven't made a letterbox list, but I mean, then I would think of Insomnia, and then I would think of The Prestige, and then I would think of Batman Begins. I mean, he's just a fantastic director, one of the best working today. Probably the best director of the 2010s, easily. Um, but if you want to go ahead and hit me with your list real quick, please do. Interstellar is my favorite. <laughs> Don't hurt me. Um, probably that's number one. Number two is The Dark Knight. Three is actually Dunkirk for me. Four is Memento. Five is Inception. And then it goes Batman Begins, Prestige, uh, Dark Knight Rises, Insomnia, which I still love. Yeah. And then his first movie is last, called The Following, which is like, okay. Yeah, that would I, I would put last as well. It's like good, but, you know. It's a stupid go. project. Yeah. 
All right, well, Colin, thank you for joining me on Phenomenal Flicks. You are my third, fourth, fourth guest that I've had. Um, yeah, and I'm glad I got to talk about this movie with you because it's a movie that we both really enjoy, deserved its tenure due, and I know you know, a, you are kind of the guy I go to when it comes to like director oeuvres because you like to go yes. in, you like to say, I want to watch all of Scorsese, I want to watch all of Nolan, I want to watch all of Tim Burton. Uh, which you probably shouldn't do after 1999, but... I've already done all those. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, he had a steep, steep drop. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's fun to tackle kind of a director's movie like this, and I'm glad I could join you on there. Um, Colin, again, thanks for joining me. And as always, yeah. everyone, stay phenomenal. <laughs>